Thank you, Jeremy, and uh, thank you as well for having me this morning. It's great to be back after a 10-year hiatus, and um, one of the uh, unofficial mottos of Rooftop Church is to uh, have a growth strategy of having as many children as possible. So it's good to see that you guys are still going strong in that church growth model. Um, Angela only had three kids, so we were slackers. But Jeremy has made up for our absence, so I'm thankful for that. Well, this morning, we're going to be talking about New Year's resolutions. And um, it's the time of year to sort of reflect back on this past year and then make sort of commitments for the new year. And as you notice on this graph up here, the most common resolutions every year is for physical health and fitness, whether that's dieting, losing some pounds, going to the gym. Uh, Angela and I are part of the gym, and every January we know it's going to be packed. But fortunately, by Valentine's Day, it'll be back to normal because that's how long most people keep their resolutions. But the interesting thing about this list is that Um, you have to go all the way down to the bottom of the list before you see any resolution that has to do with something that's not physical, but more importantly, relational, right? Uh, That last one is spending more time with family or friends. And nowhere on this list is anything about spiritual development or growth or any resolution about wanting to be closer to God or learning how to love our neighbor. So this morning, I want to propose that we here at Rooftop, make a spiritual resolution to get in shape, to get in spiritual shape. Now, one of the things that's true about even our physical shape, and one of the thing, advice that I give to folks who want to get in spirit, uh, physical shape is, I tell them, sign up for some kind of run or event or a hike, something later on in the year, uh, preferably late summer or fall. And the more expensive the registration fee is, the better, right? Because you want to register for something, an event, that you will not back out of. So try to find the most expensive event you can and sign up for it. Because we need motivation. We need a goal to work towards. You can't just say, well, I just want to lose some pounds or I want to be more physically fit. And in the same way, you can't say, I want to just grow closer to God or I want to... A love, I want to be more loving. You know, uh, many of us know that we want to be better Christians. We want to be more like Jesus. But in the same way, when we don't have specific goals, when we don't sign up for specific things, we lose motivation very, very quickly. So this morning, I'm here to encourage you to not only take on a spiritual resolution, but I'm going to give you some tools to make sure that you follow through. And in fact, the model that I want to use or the analogy is something called CrossFit. Now, how many of you have heard of CrossFit or done CrossFit before? So basically, CrossFit is working out until you throw up. That's basically what CrossFit is, okay? Um, There's something called burpees, right? I don't know if you've seen this, but you can look online. But basically, the point of burpees is to make you throw up. Uh, That's basically the point of it. Um, But one of the principles behind CrossFit is to gain strength, to lose weight, all that kinds of stuff. But something that they understand, which is very key for us to understand spiritually, is fitness and muscle growth does not happen without pushing your limits. Uh, I was a wrestler in middle school, and when I started wrestling uh, at the age of 12, 
I was a massive 94 pounds of pure bone and tendon. Um, and my uh, eighth grade year, I wrestled on varsity, because, not because I was the best wrestler, but because there was no one else in my weight class. So my record after my eighth grade wrestling career was one and 11. And that one win was from a forfeit because the other team didn't have someone in the lowest weight class, right? So after that year, um, at the end of the year banquet we had for our wrestling team, you know, I was like, okay, this is it. I tried out wrestling. I tried out sports. You know, I'm, I'm not going to do that when I go into high school. Well, my coach came up to me, and, and this, this, was sort of, this was really a life-changing experience, this conversation my coach had for me. It impacted me for the rest of my life. Basically, he said, bum, I really want to encourage you to wrestle when you go to high school. And I was like, oh, coach, I tried it out. I'm just not that good. And he said, no, you are one of the best technicians. In other words, your technique is one of the best I've ever seen. But you just have no strength, right? So if you just got a little strength, then I think you would be a fantastic wrestler. So I said, well, okay, I'll give it another try. And that um, spring, I asked for a weight set for uh, my birthday. And I did what every 13-year-old does when they're doing something that they don't know anything about, and that was to go to the library and get a book on lifting weights. And my local library, well, now you guys just go online and look for something online, but um, I couldn't believe, but my local library had the Bible of weightlifting, and that was Arnold Schwarzenegger's <laughs> book on bodybuilding. <laughs> Right? Now, I don't remember a whole lot out of that book, but the thing, the principle that I remember to this day is if you want to grow your muscles, if you want to grow in strength, you have to go beyond your own capabilities. You have to lift until failure, right? You lift until you can't lift anymore. And in fact, the first 10 reps that you do is just to get you tired, right? You're not even growing there. It's the last few couple until you fail, you can't do it anymore. That's where you actually tear some of your muscle, right? The key to growth is you actually have to tear some of your muscle. Those micro tears, when they rebuild, that's what makes your muscle bigger because it comes back stronger. That's the key to strength building. Now, of course, you can go over far and tear your muscle and do all kinds of bad things, but the principle is you have to go beyond what you're used to doing. And from that, I went off to uh, wrestle successfully in high school and everything like that, but that principle stayed with me, is that you have to constantly go beyond what you are capable of doing now if you want to continue to grow. And that principle applies spiritually as well. And as we're going to see, Jesus is going to be talking about that to us. If you want to grow, you must go beyond what you are capable of doing right now. That's the only way that you grow. But thankfully, God has all of us in his CrossFit class and is going to teach us how to go beyond and to continue to grow and have specific goals. And this morning, I want to propose that your New Year's resolution, your spiritual goal for this next year should be loving your enemy. Loving your enemy. Make that your spiritual goal for 2020. And notice... As a pastor, I'm not saying your spiritual goal should be to pray more. I'm not saying your spiritual goal should be to read the Bible more. Your spiritual goal should be to fast more, right? When pastors say that, it's the same as a doctor saying, 
eat more vegetables, right? Exercise more. We all know that we should do that. The problem is the motivation. And I guarantee you this morning that if you try to love your enemy, you will pray more. You will read the Bible more. You will fast. You will come to your end in desperation and you will pray. I guarantee you. So if you make this your New Year's resolution to love your enemy rather than to hate them, I guarantee that you will grow closer to God. You will grow closer to God. So this morning we're gonna look at scripture found in Matthew chapter five. Now this is from the Sermon on the Mount. If I could only have three chapters out of the entire Bible, if I was stuck on an island, stranded, um, these would be the three chapters that I would have, Matthew five through seven, because if you only apply these three chapters from Jesus' words, you are far ahead of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And I have found the plain teaching here in Matthew 5 to 7 to be the most difficult to follow. And this passage in particular is very difficult to follow. But not because it isn't clear. There's no ambiguity in terms of what Jesus is saying. But the application is really, really hard. But let's work through that together. Matthew 5, starting in verse 43. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, What are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. So there's three points that I want us uh, to highlight out of this passage, and the first one is that in order to be CrossFit, we need to be revolutionary. We need to be revolutionary. The pattern of the Sermon on the Mount is basically Jesus Uh, quotes a maxim or a truth or an Old Testament law that everyone knows, right? And they're following it. Uh, For example, he says, it is written, it is said that you shall not commit adultery, right? Everyone knew that and knew that that was part of Old Testament law. But what he does then is he makes it even worse (laughs) by saying that it's a matter of the heart. So he says, it is written, it is said that you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you, that if you even look at someone lustfully, you are committing adultery. So what he does is he takes an Old Testament law that most people knew, and he makes it worse by saying it's a matter of the heart, not just your outward behavior. So here in this passage, what Jesus is saying is, you've heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. And that was the principle that everyone understood. And in fact, in the Old Testament, we're supposed to separate ourselves from the Gentiles, we're supposed to remain pure. But as Jesus comes, he says, actually, it's not the outward behavior that the Pharisees are focused on. It's the heart, it's the matters of the heart. So what he says is, actually, it isn't loving your neighbor and hating your enemy. What God really wants is for you to love your enemy. And that was mind-blowingly radical, so much so that Many of the people rejected Jesus for that, right? How can that be possible that God would want us to love Gentiles or even the Samaritans? 
And we have the benefit of this side of the cross, this side of Jesus' teaching. We've had this teaching available to us, uh, and, and many of us have heard the terms of turn the other cheek. But I want to argue that it, today, to this day, this teaching is still radical and very hard to follow and is revolutionary to what is common practice. So even here in the church, we know that this is true. We know that Jesus requires us to love our enemies, and yet I don't think it's any easier to do today than it was 2,000 years ago when he said it for the first time. 2020, November, at least half of the population is going to be very, very disappointed either way, right? That's the only prediction I'm going to make about what's going to happen at the next presidential election. The, the division that we have experienced these past three years is only going to get worse, I think, regardless of what is going to happen in November of 2020, right? And try to imagine a world or a place where Nancy Pelosi would be in a room with President Trump and they would have mutual affection for one another, where they would honor and respect and want good things for one another. Can you imagine that kind of love? No, I can't, I can't imagine it at all, right? I mean, it just is not gonna happen. Um, that, that is not going to happen, okay? Um, because the love that Jesus is asking us to do here in scripture is not going to happen in our political structures. The problems with the division of our nation is not going to happen by electing the right people in the right places. The solution is the church, not the political structures. So if you are thinking 2020, if I can just make it to 2020, we get the right people or keep the right people in office, that's gonna solve our problems here in America. That is not the case. I'm here to tell you that is not the case. Jesus brought together very radically opposing political viewpoints into his 12, right? On one hand, you had zealots. They were willing to do violence to Romans to overthrow them, right? And on the other hand, you had Matthew, a tax collector, a trader who was working with the Romans to get money, right? Somehow, he brought them together into his community. They planted the church in Acts together. And it's strange. I, I have never read a dialogue where Jesus says, y'all gotta pick this party or you have to pick this group of people. No, he, there's no political conversation that he has. He just says, you guys gotta get along. You guys gotta serve each other. You guys have to wash each other's feet. He, it, it really is up to us. It's up to us rooftoppers, right? To love the way that Jesus is calling us to love. The solution isn't out there. So in order to do that, we have to be different from society. We have to communicate differently. When we go online and someone posts that fat baseball that you know you can just crank with your pure logic, right, and retort, you know you could do that, but you choose instead to love that person, that's us. We have to do that not others. We have to be revolutionary. 
The second point that I want to talk about is uh, be perfect, the mandate to be perfect. And I know a couple of us who have anxiety get, get a little bit uh, nervous when we see this message about being perfect. Um, I want to allay that fear. Um, perfection isn't God asking us to do more uh, and, and create anxiousness. Um, God's call in terms of calling us to be perfect is to actually have more peace not greater anxiety. But I love this passage because what Jesus is basically saying is he's not impressed. It doesn't get his attention when you love people who love you, right? If you have a loving parent, Jesus does not applaud you when you love that parent back. Uh, When you give Christmas gifts, elaborate Christmas gifts to others who you know they're going to give you a Christmas gift, that doesn't get God's attention, right? What gets God's attention is when we choose to love people who don't deserve it, when we choose to love our enemy. That's basically what this passage is saying. Jesus is saying, you want want our Father's attention? Love your enemy, right? And Jesus constantly was saying weird things like when you throw a party, don't invite your friends to your party. Go out and invite people who can't throw a party for you, right? He just said strange things, things we don't, won't do uh, because we hear messages of don't do that. You'll be taken advantage of. People will take advantage of your generosity. There's a limit. Love yourself first before you can love others. I, I do believe that there is a principle where we need to stand secure in Jesus before we can serve other people. But the only way you do that, again, in CrossFit training is you have to push yourself beyond where you are now. And that means continually loving your enemy. So the question that we need to constantly ask ourselves is who is it that we are hanging out with? Who is it that we're spending time with? Is it only with people that we get along with? Is it only with people that we like? I wanna argue that Jesus, when he was here on earth, He did spend time with the 12. He did spend time uh, with people who loved him. But he spent an amazing amount of time dialoguing with his enemies, with people who wanted to kill him. Uh, I know for certain, and this has never happened, no one, as far as I know, has ever threatened my life, right? But if I knew someone was wanting to kill me, I would want to stay as far away from them as possible or at least get them incarcerated so that they can't hurt me. But Jesus, on a regular basis, dialogued and, yes, loved his enemies. And that's what he's calling us to do as well. But here's the kicker about this passage. Jesus says specifically, the enemy he's talking about are those who persecute you. Enemies that persecute you. And who persecuted Jesus? It actually wasn't the Romans. That was not Jesus' enemy group where he was loving on. It was, in fact, his own people, the Jews, the people who spoke his language, his own race, the people who should have been for him, the religious rulers, were against him. They were the enemy. And isn't it true that for us, our greatest enemy are actually our closest friends or family members? Yes, it's good when you forgive and choose to love that poor worker at the DMV 
who asked you to bring another piece of paper that you neglected to bring to renew your license, right? Yes, you do well when you choose to love that person or that person that cuts you off in traffic. Yes, you are doing well when you love that enemy. But you and I both know the enemies that keep you up at night, that create anxiety in your heart when you think about interacting with them, they are your immediate family members. They are your immediate friends. They are the people that went to Renosa with you on that mission project that should know better. They are the enemies that Jesus is talking about. Why? Because they're the ones that can hurt you the most, right? They're the ones that you need to choose to love and forgive. Your parents, right? Uncles, family members, stuff that you didn't even know about, ways that they hurt you that you need to learn to forgive and love anyway. That's what's hard about being CrossFit. They are the ones that push us the most in terms of what it means to love an enemy. And then the final point from this passage I wanna make uh, addresses um, why we do any of this at all. Why do we love and try to do something that feels so impossible sometimes? And that is to be children of God. This is how we are children of God. When Jesus came to earth and died on the cross for us, that enabled us to be adopted into the family and to have God as our father and for us to be siblings. Now, uh, if you're a parent, you know this sentiment. Uh, There's nothing that drives you more crazy than to see a child of yours that you just lavished gifts and love on, turn around and be mean to another sibling, right? Nothing drives you more crazy as a parent than to see a child that you are showing a lot of love towards turn around and uh, repay that with meanness to a sibling. God is the same way. Yes, he loves us unconditionally, but he's got and he's got expectations for us to care for one another the same way that he cares for us. He wants us to love one another, and that's what it means to be a child of God. To be a child of God is to have the characteristics of the Father and to have characteristics of the Son, of Jesus. And what is the primary distinguishing characteristic of Jesus? Is that he sacrificed his own needs for our sake that he went to the cross. He gave up what he wanted so that we could get what we wanted, and that was to be his child. That's why Jesus says crazy things. You guys are gonna uh, start a series on the parables. Uh, There's a ton of parables that talk about how our forgiveness with God is conditional to our forgiveness of one another. I am surprised how many Christians think that forgiveness is unconditional. That is nowhere in the Bible. Love is unconditional. God will always love us, even if we reject him. But his forgiveness, us being in heaven after we die, is conditional on us forgiving people who wrong us. And again, I hope you guys uh, will study those passages in this next series but there are many circumstances and places, the primary one, parable of the unforgiving servant. If you do not forgive the small, petty 
debt that you have with a neighbor, God will not forgive you the massive debt that you have with God. I mean, it is as clear as it can be. So that is a primary thing about what it means to be a child of God, being willing to love, to forgive, to let go of the debt uh, of this person, to release them from what they deserve. And they do deserve your wrath, right? They do. But letting go of that is what it means to be a child of God. When Angel and I left Rooftop 10 years ago to plant a church, we were focused uh, on this principle of what it really means to love, um, love your neighbor. And for us, uh, we wanted to plant a church that really bridged the gap economically here in St. Louis. Uh, even more so than racial reconciliation, I think the deeper rift that we have found is the economic one. Bringing people of disparate economic backgrounds, especially at the extremes, um, is one of the places that I think the church really uh, needs to step into and participate in that reconciliation process. Uh, because it involves race and all the other dynamics, um, that is one area that I think is pretty difficult. And as we planted the church, we knew it was gonna be a hard endeavor, but we felt God's call to enter into that and do that um, in earnest. And uh, for a little while, it was really amazing to see WashU professors uh, having Bible study in Section 8 housing in the north side and all these different races working together from backgrounds, really learning about what it meant to apply these principles that we're studying this morning, to really love an enemy. And... Um, I had a co-pastor as well. He was also from the north side. We felt like it was important to share power together and to display and model what reconciliation looked like. So having an Asian pastor and an African-American pastor working together towards this endeavor uh, was really modeling what it meant and, and to show people that this can happen, that the church is really the solution to some of these issues. But sure enough, after a while, there was conflict that my co-pastor and I started happening. Honestly, I wasn't surprised by that. I was expecting that. Uh, no one goes into racial reconciliation without knowing that you have to work through conflict. Um, but eventually, over time, that conflict grew and grew to the point where uh, we ended up having to uh, break ways, um, and then that resulted in closing the church in this past October. Uh, meanwhile, as we're going through this process, um, I remembered a prayer that I prayed back when I first became a Christian at the age of 16 through the ministry of Young Life. And what I had, I'd been foolish enough to pray, Lord, grow my heart to love more people. And as a naive 16-year-old new Christian praying that prayer, the way that I thought he was going to answer that was by the Holy Spirit magically coming into my heart that I would just supernaturally be able to love people. That's what I thought God was gonna do in answering that prayer. But no, that is not how God answered that prayer. Instead, for the next 35 years of my life, the way God has consistently answered that prayer is he keeps sending jerks my way. <laughs> he keeps sending people I can't stand, you know, just my way where I have to love them. Um, and so over those 35 years, I, I do want to testify that God helped me grow my heart slowly, just like that strength training, right? You increase the resistance to grow that muscle. 
um, over the years, I believe that CrossFit training prepared me for the conflict that I was having with my co-pastor. And I am thankful to say that I did not ever wish ill upon my co-pastor. Even through all the conflict, even through shutting down the church, all that kinds of stuff, I can testify that through the Holy Spirit and 35 years of CrossFit training, that I did not wish ill upon my pastor. And we had tons of conflict, right? It did not end well. But in the midst of that, I believe God, through the power of the Holy Spirit, enabled me to love my pastor, my co-pastor. Or so I thought. So since uh, shutting down the church, um, Angie and I have been in a six-month sabbatical before we think about what next steps God has for our ministry. And one of those is um, to go to counseling, to do a lot of prayer, to reflect. And in the midst of that, what the Holy Spirit has been bringing up is, hey, bum, you thought you were doing so awesome in loving your co-pastor through this conflict, but in fact, you are not. You are not doing what Jesus was calling you to do. And as I prayed about it, and as the counselor was pointing out, uh, what I thought was loving was actually me turning off like a switch, uh, my heart towards my co-pastor, and basically saying, you can't hurt me anymore. I have no expectations for you anymore. And I thought I was doing a good job because I wasn't getting, you know, when I was in my 20s, I would have totally raged, right? I would have totally been angry and upset and did all kinds of crazy stuff. So I thought I was doing well, but the Holy Spirit was saying, no, bum, I did not close off my heart when I was on earth. And the scripture I keep going back to is Jesus praying so earnestly in the Garden of Gethsemane before going to the cross. Him being hurt and disappointed that his closest friends couldn't stay awake and pray pray for him. Jesus really felt disappointment and hurt and anguish. And he allowed himself to feel that. He didn't turn off a switch and say, well, I know that I have to go to the cross anyway, so it's God's will, so I'm just gonna do that, you know? No, Jesus was genuinely hurt. And so God's invitation, my CrossFit regimen and program where God is pushing me is to say, bum, stay engaged, stay vulnerable, allow them to hurt you. And so I need to apologize to my co-pastor for failing to love him the way that Jesus wanted me to. So I don't know where you are at in your journey. I don't know what specific regimen Jesus has for you, but the invitation is for you to be a child, to be more a child, to be more like Jesus, is to take that next step and to be not to be afraid to be pushed just a little bit more beyond what you're comfortable with, to engage, to remain vulnerable, to remain open. Maybe it's even acknowledging that this person is an enemy and being able to vocalize that. I don't know where it is that the Holy Spirit needs to work on you this next year, but let's pray that we would say yes to the invitation Jesus has for us, especially this next year in 2020, that that would be a way that we can all together, corporately, be the church that we're supposed to be representing Jesus. So let's pray that that way. 
Lord Jesus, even as we look at this mandate and scripture passage that says that we are to love our enemy, some of us here this morning can identify right away who that person is. Others of us, though, we need to we need to pray more and think about this more. Some of us can identify um, coworkers, family members, uh, might even be literal neighbors, um, might be our spouse, parents, children. Wherever it may be, Lord, we want to thank you that you do bring these people into our lives, not for our deficit, but for our growth, that we can become more like you. And I do pray, especially for Rooftop, that in 2020, this place would be a place of grace, especially to those that are different, especially to those who hold different views, especially to those who don't even believe in you that we might be light to the world, that we might be children of you. Thank you for your mercy and grace. In Jesus' name.